Well, good morning. Before I begin, I wanted to mention two things. First of all, for those of you that are involved with the Revelation study, uh, it'll be continuing not next weekend, which is Valentine's Day. A lot of you would not forgive me for that, uh, but it's going to be the week after. Second, I wanted to mention that in April, there's going to be an event at the Fairmont State University with, involving Will Graham, who's the grandson of Billy Graham. They're putting on uh, what's called a Mountain State Celebration, but it's kind of a modern version of the crusade that his father used to do. And part of what's involved with all of that is they're providing training for local churches in terms of sharing our faith. It's called a Christian Life and Witness Course, and they're offering it at different churches across the state of West Virginia, and we're one of the churches that's providing that training. It's a three-week course. It takes place on Monday nights. Here it's going to be February 17th, 24th, and March 2nd. So it's a week from this coming Monday will be the first one, three in, weeks in a row, about two hours long each of the trainings. And um, this is for any of you that have an interest in just learning to be more effective in living out and communicating your faith. Uh, also from th those who attend this, I think they're hoping that some of you will participate in the celebration itself as people respond to the gospel message, you'll have the privilege of leading people to faith in Christ. So if you're interested to know more about that course, as you're leaving, there'll be some of these flyers that'll be um, on little tables in the back. You don't have to go, by the way, to all three weeks here if you're gonna have to miss one of the weeks. There are other churches doing it on other, other nights of the week. And so you can do the first week here and the second week over here or whatever, and those churches are also listed on this brochure. Now, some time ago, I went down to Central America, and while I was there, I went with some Honduran friends to the town of Copan. Copan is a, a town that's located about five miles from the Guatemala border, and it's known for its Mayan ruins. And when, when we arrived at this particular town, I was surprised that we were the only or one of the few visitors that were there. Uh, I didn't see any other Americans. It seemed like nobody was visiting Copan when we were there. Part of the reason was that some of the roads leading there had kind of washed away or whatever. But we had the place kind of to ourselves, which was really fun. So, and so we went to the ruins. Here's a picture of some of the step pyramids that are part of the Mayan ruins. And while we were there, there were archaeologists who were doing a dig underneath one of these step pyramids. They were seven civilizations down and digging up various things. Well, because no one was around really, we didn't have a tour guide, so we could walk wherever we wanted. And I was walking around the back of one of these step pyramids, and I saw something that kind of startled me. I saw a head on, on one of the hills. And uh, I walked over to it, and turns out it was, it was a stone head that was moss-covered, and I realized I had discovered something that the archaeologists had not discovered yet. And the first thought that occurred to me is, I want to bring this home, you know? But I, I thought uh, two reasons I didn't want to. One is it was kind of big. It was a little smaller than a bowling ball. It was heavy, you know? But second, I thought if they opened up my suitcase, I'd probably end up in a prison somewhere. <clears throat> so I left it right where it was. But later, as I thought about it, I was glad I didn't bring it home. Because I was to discover that this was likely uh, the head of one of their deified rulers. In other words, it was an idol. They believed in worshiping their, their, their rulers. And I realized I'd be bringing this thing 
back into my home and there's just something about that that was just a little, a little bothersome to me. On another occasion, I was able to travel with my twin brother and my father to Egypt. And at a certain point while we were there, we went to the Cairo Museum. And at the museum at the time, they had the treasures of King Tut, the boy king who died. And, and his sarcophagus and everything surrounding his tomb is just remarkable. But I realized that while I was there, I was disturbed about something. Something was bothering me. You know how sometimes uh, something it, it kind of is weighing on you and you realize something's bothering me, but you have to figure out what it is. Like, what, what is, what's disturbing me right now? And that's where I was, and I couldn't figure it out while I was at, at the museum, but as I was riding on the bus ride home, I realized what was bothering me. It was all the idols. King Tut had been so afraid of death and, and he was surrounded in his burial chamber with, with hundreds of these gods or images of gods that he worshipped. And, and yet, the sad thing was, from my perspective, none of them could save. I mean, these, these are two civilizations that put their trust in a God that could not save them. You see, the object of our faith really matters. Our faith is only as good in, as the thing in which it's placed. And if our faith is not in a true God, if our God is a man, <clears throat> for example, uh, he's not going to be able to help us. If our God is a, a beetle or the sun, they're not going to be able to help us. King David wrote about the idols of his day in Psalm 15. He's, he wrote, their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throats. Then he adds, adds this, those who make them are just like them, as are all who trust in them. These idols that were made by human hands, they had eyes, but they, they, couldn't, they, they couldn't see. The gods couldn't see out of the eyes. They had ears, but they couldn't hear. And those who crafted them, David was saying, are kind of blind. It doesn't occur to them that they have crafted something with their own hands that they are now bowing down before. Now, my purpose here this morning is not to put down any other religions or any other gods, but I think it does matter if the object of our trust is really God, if he's really divine. Jesus talked to the woman at the well. He said, those who, who worship God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, I love the God that we worship as he's recorded in the pages of the Bible. I'm amazed when I see what God is like, a God that we can actually get to know despite the fact that he's so amazing. Today, I want to continue this series we've been doing called The More You Know. It's a series about what God's like as revealed through the pages of the Bible. First week of the series, I talked about the existence of God and, and why I believe God exists, that our faith is not a blind faith. Uh, we... we we have reasons for why we believe what we do. And then we begin looking at some of the qualities or attributes of God, that God is love and we can experience his love. God is holy, which encompasses the fact he's righteous and pure, sinless and just. All those come under holy. 
And then I talked last week about the fact that God is omnipotent, he's omnipresent, and he's omniscient. He knows all things, he's all-powerful, and he's everywhere. He is not everything. Everything is not God, but he is everywhere. But today I want to look at an attribute of God that's a little bit hard to get a handle on. It's one of those attributes, though, that sets apart the God of the Bible from the other gods that I've even talked about this morning. The eternality of God, the gods of the past, for example, you think of the Roman gods or the Greek gods, they're the gods that people worshiped in the past, but they, they're not worshiped anymore. But our God is an eternal God without beginning or end. The problem with this, from a human perspective, is that it's just hard to wrap our hands around the idea of anything being eternal. I mean, you think for a moment, if you look around at anything in this room or anything outside this room, but if you look at anything, there's not a, a, a thing you can look at that has always existed. Is there anything you can look at that's eternal? I mean, just look around you. Is anything eternal? Is there a single thing? Even the sun, is it eternal? Was it eternal? No, it was created at a point in time. We don't know anything in our existence that didn't have a beginning. And so you talk about a God that doesn't have it a beginning and it's like, I just can't, I, I, I don't know what to do with that. Now, there is one thing that you can look at and only one thing that doesn't have an end. Any of you know what it is? There's one thing that's gonna last forever. Any idea what it is? And there was silence. Well, his word, but I would say that that's not something you can look at. I mean, it, it's, it is. God's word is eternal, but it's, I'd call it not physical. Although, I mean, a Bible is, but it won't endure. The Bible won't, but the word of God will. Uh, it's people. We've been created with an eternal soul. We've been created in the image of God. But everything else that you think of, this building 14 years ago did not exist. It had a moment of time in which it came into being. 61 years ago, I did not exist, except maybe in the mind of my parents. Uh, and then I was born. And so we, we mark time in terms of when something was created or born or whatever. But when you come to God, he didn't have a beginning. And he won't have an end either. And the Bible begins with this idea of the eternality of God in the first few words. I talked about the first week, Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When the beginning was just beginning, God was already there. He was, he was already standing there at the very beginning. And Jesus was with him. So was the Holy Spirit. John, who was one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his disciples, the youngest of the disciples, walked with Jesus for three years. And after observing his life, hearing everything he said, watching everything he ever did, he concluded he was indeed God. He begins his gospel in this way, in the beginning was the Word. It was already was. In the beginning was the Word. It's a reference to Jesus as God's final communication with humanity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. Apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Life was in him, and that life was the light of man. If you're looking for life, real life, spiritual life, if you're looking for light, it's found in Jesus. But why do we care about the eternality of God? So it's kind of an interesting concept, but why does it, why does it matter to us? Why do we care that God is eternal? 
Well, because he alone has the proper perspective of everything. As the expression goes, he alone has been around the block. You know, we don't have that benefit. We have the benefit of being here and now, born within a particular context in which we're raised. We have a perception of things based on where we are in the here and now. But God has always existed. And so my takeaway this morning is this, because God is eternal, he knows what he's doing. It comes down to whether or not we will learn to trust God and realize you really do know what's best because you've, you, you've been there. From eternity past to eternity future, you've been here. Now our perspective, again, by way of contrast, is, is quite limited. Let me give you two illustrations of this and I think both may be familiar to you. The first one, I don't know who came up with this, but you're imagining, you imagine a scene where you got five guys that are blindfolded and they're placed at the side of or on top of or around an elephant. And, and let's just assume they've never seen an elephant before. And with the blindfold on, they are supposed to def- describe what it is, tell everybody what it is. And depending on where you are in the animal, you come up with a different anim- uh, answer. The guy that's standing there at the table, tail, tail I'm sorry, says it's a rope. Uh, this is a rope. Guy who's kind of climbing up there on the, on the ladder, uh, he, he might think that it's either a wall or the one that's up by the ears, if, especially if it was flapping, he might think it's a fan. The person who's grabbing the leg there thinks it's a tree trunk, maybe. It feels like a tree trunk. Whoever grabs the tusk might think that it's a, a spear of some kind if you're grabbing the, the, the nose, the trunk. You're going to think it's a hose. They all have a very limited perspective because they don't, they don't see the whole picture. That's the point. We, we don't see the whole picture, but our God does. I saw a follow-up illustration of this that I thought was kind of cute. It's got the same guys trying to figure out what it is. And then you got Jesus over on the right-hand side there with his hand up, and he says, it's an elephant. It's like, guys, it's an elephant. He's the one that sees the, the whole perspective of this th- th- thing, but we don't. Another illustration is that of this rope that extends off the end of both sides of this stage. It represents eternity. It goes that way and that way, and of course, with eternity, it goes on forever in both directions. Our place in the rope is right here. Maybe just one finger would represent our place in, in an eternal rope here. That's it. And we know a little bit about what's come before, we know a little bit about what's come after, but we just do not have the whole picture. We just don't know, and yet in our pride, many times we think we do. I got this thing figured out. God alone knows. Solomon wrote about this, even this searching that we have to figure out where we fit in eternity. In Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11, He wrote, God has also put eternity in their hearts, but man cannot discover the work God has done from beginning to end. I think he's saying that all of us kind of know that there's this thing called eternity. Most people realize when you die that you just continue on. I think most people have a concept of eternity. Even where that concept came from proves to me there is an eternal God. I don't think we would have even conceived of an eternal concept had it not existed. And yet, we're trying to figure out where we fit in it. It's like, I'm just this one spot. I don't know what's come before. I don't know what's come after. A scholar by the name of D.R. Glenn put it this way. 
Solomon observed that God has put eternity in the hearts of people, people have a longing or desire to know the extra-temporal significance of themselves and their deeds or activities. They want to know that the things they do extend beyond time. They want to know where they fit in. We all want to know, where do I fit into the whole scheme of things? Why was I born now? And what does my contribution do to eternity? Moses was one who spoke about the eternality of God along with a lot of other writers. Let's look at what some of them had to say. Moses wrote in Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. You understood before the mountains, before the earth, before eternity, before anything it was, from eternity to eternity, eternity past, eternity future, you are God. Moses, of course, was the guy that asked God his name, and his very name implies this eternality. His name, Yahweh, I am that I am, the self-existent one, the one who did not have a beginning, the one who created everything but was not himself created, and yet we're so proud sometimes to think we know something. Again, I think because God is eternal, he knows what he's doing. In 1 Chronicles 29.10, we read the, the words of David. He said, we read, David then praised the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. David said, may you be praised, Lord God, of our father Israel from eternity to eternity. That was his heartbeat, his wish that God would be worshiped from eternity past to eternity future, and that's exactly what did happen, and it's exactly what will happen. Isaiah the prophet spoke about the eternality of God, and he gave a practical application for us, something that would be a great comfort, a good verse to memorize, or verses to memorize, Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. He said, you will keep the mind that is dependent on you in perfect peace, for it's trusting in you, trust in the Lord forever, because in Yah, the Lord, is an everlasting rock. Yah is the shortened name for the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, translated in most Bibles, Lord. Our ability to be in peace our ability to not walk in anxiety and fear all the time has everything to do with what we're standing on, the foundation upon which we're standing. If our, if our foundation is the, the stuff of this world, we're going to, I think, be in trouble. We're going to be battered around like the waves of the sea. But if our foundation is the eternal rock, he says, well, that person, that person is dependent on God. That is the person who will experience peace in his or her life. It's a tremendous application to this idea. Jeremiah, the prophet, wrote in Jeremiah 10.10, but Yahweh's the true God. He's the living God and eternal king, God who's gonna reign forever and ever. This truth is repeated all over in the pages of the Bible. Even the Babylonian king, who was pagan, acknowledged this truth about God in Daniel chapter four and verse three. He said, how great are God's miracles and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. That's a big deal for someone like Nebuchadnezzar to say because in his day he was it. There was no more powerful person on earth than Nebuchadnezzar in his day. The whole world was under his rule 
And then God humbled him and from his place of humility, he says, you're the only eternal king, I surrender. And he acknowledged God. And then one last reference in the New Testament, and again, there are many more out there, but these are ones I selected. Paul wrote to his son in the faith, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. He's the, again, he's a king, he's an eternal king, he's the eternal by himself, but also an eternal king. He is immortal, he's not like we are, he is invisible, he's the only God, and therefore he's worthy of honor, glory forever and ever. Now I, I realize that to suggest here today that the God that's recorded in the pages of the Bible, pages of the Bible is the only God, I know that that in a pluralistic culture like ours is kind of offensive. But I'm, I'm convinced that the truth matters. I'm convinced that the God of the Bible is, is the true God, and part of the reason I'm convinced that's the case is because he's not a God we would have created. Do you wanna, you, you wanna know what gods we would create as people if we were creating gods? We would create the gods of the Romans and the Greeks. Very flawed gods, very human gods, aren't they? I mean, you think of the stories of, of some of these gods. They said, those are the gods that a person would create. Yeah, a god in their own image. Of course, we'd create something that we're familiar with, something we know. We wouldn't even conceive of a god who was absolutely sinless or perfect because we'd never seen it again. And then I look at the god of the Bible. We, if we were creating gods, we would create gods after uh, the animals that impress us. Might have a lion god. Might have a bung beetle as a, god, a beetle as a dung beetle as a god. You might worship the sun because it's so impressive. Even one of the pharaohs, though, in history records that he determined that the sun was not God. It's, it's recorded in history. He watched that the sun took the same path every day. He said, you know, that's kind of like a hired hand. It looks like somebody's telling it to do that. It's not free. If God were the sun, it'd be free. It could do whatever it wanted. It's stuck. You know, he concluded that. He concluded that a small cloud could dim the brightness of, of the sun. That can't be God. He began to order his people to start worshiping the God who created the sun. That's the true God. But I'm just saying that people that would create gods would create them in these ways. I look at the God of the Bible, who would conceive of such a God, a God who is the eternal judge, the God before whom we have to submit ourselves, who is perfect and has this standard that we can't even live up to. We would not create a God like that. We need to create a God or would want to create a God who would be nice to us and very understanding of all our humanity, which our God is understanding, don't get me wrong there. But it really matters that our trust be placed in a true God. What are some applications to this idea of the eternality of God as well as his other attributes? Well, let me give you a few. I encourage you to select one to apply to your life. One of them is just worship. I think God alone is worthy of worship. Those who worship God do so in spirit and in truth. He's so infinitely greater than we can imagine. He alone is worthy of our worship. And by the way, we don't worship God because he has an ego problem. It's like, well, why does God require worship? It's not for his sake, it's for ours. 
Those of you that have a relationship with God through faith in Christ, you know what it is to worship and you realize what it does to your heart and soul and spirit. It elevates you. It elevates me. It gets our eyes off of all this. And for a few minutes, our eyes are turned on God and we remember there's more to this life. There's, there's a God. There's a future. There's goodness. It's about us. And no worship, by the way, that we could ever give would be worthy of, of how great he is. He's just greater than our ability to even measure his worthiness. And so let's learn to worship him as we see him more clearly. Second application is that we can trust what God says is good and right and true. My takeaway main one again today is because God eternally knows what he's doing. I just think more and more we live in a society where people don't trust what's written in what I believe is the word of God in the Bible. And um, we have our own opinions about morals and values and ideas and what we think we know. It all changes all the time. But, but as I look at the pages of the Bible, I say that's the word of God there. And that's where I want to understand what God is like, and, and I trust him. He knows what he's talking about. He's been around the block. And this is true, by the way, of both the Old and New Testaments. There's a lot of effort these days to say the Old Testament doesn't apply to us anymore. It does. We're not under the Old Testament law, don't get me wrong. We're not going to start sacrificing animals. But from my perspective, the moral laws of the Old Testament law still apply. The ceremonial laws do not. We don't have to worry about our clothing and stuff like that or whether we can eat bacon. Those don't apply anymore. Those are ceremonial laws. But the moral laws continue. So you think of the Ten Commandments. Don't lie. Is that still relevant? Yeah, I guess it is. Don't commit adultery. Is that still relevant? I think it is. Obey your parents. Yes, I think it is. The moral laws apply. And as we read the Bible, we see what God is about. And we say, okay, what you say is right is right, regardless of what others say. And then a third application, this one it depends on where you're at spiritually. I mentioned that we were created in the image of God as eternal beings. That means that we're all going to spend an eternity somewhere. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this should be for us a motive to want to share our faith with others, maybe even to get this training I talked about earlier, um, to learn how to be more effective in communicating your faith with other people because it really does matter. Uh, some of you here, though, today maybe don't know where you stand with God. In John 6 and verse 40, we read these words, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Of course, the reference here is eternal life in heaven is the idea here. That's God's will that everyone who looks upon the Son, Jesus, and understands who he is and what he came to do and then puts their trust in him, that that person will receive the free gift of eternal life with God in heaven. This was, of course, God's plan all along when he created us. He wanted us to have a relationship with him, and then we blew it. We turned our backs on God, and that's not something we can fix. We all sin, but we can't fix it. We can't clean ourselves up. You can't even stop sinning. I can't even stop sinning if I want. You can't. We, can't, we cannot clean ourselves up to be holy like our God. That's a problem. There's a gap between us. Jesus came to fill the gap, born in a unique way because he needed to be sinless, the Son of God and God the Son, but also a man. 
He'd live a sinless life so that he could go on a cross, so that he could die in our place and for the things we've done wrong. The justice of God requires that wrongdoing be penalized, punished. Jesus took the punishment for us and he died and was buried, but when he rose again from the dead, it proved that God accepted the payment on our behalf. And we receive this forgiveness of sins when we put our trust in Jesus to be our savior. The most famous verse in the Bible, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes in him will not perish. And the word perish there has the idea of suffering eternal ruin, will not perish, but rather will have eternal life. Have you put your trust in Jesus? Most do it through a prayer, a simple prayer. I know I blow it, I know I sin, I can't fix it. That's why I need a savior, a deliverer. And today I wanna to put my trust in Jesus. I want your death and resurrection to count for me because you paid the debt for me so I could be forgiven. I trust you now with my eternal destiny. And if you've never done that, I encourage you to do that today. Stand and sing along with us. I've seen you move You move the mountains And I believe I'll see you do it again You made a way Where there was no way And I believe I'll see you do it again I've seen you move You move the mountains And I believe so amazing it's hard even grab a hold of you and your awesomeness almighty all-knowing all-present so holy so righteous so pure so just in all of your ways Lord we just acknowledge that you are right in any case where Lord we have a different opinion we want to acknowledge today you are right 
And we thank you again that despite the fact you are God and you created all things, that you want a relationship with each of us individually, that you sent your son for that reason, to die in our place and for our sins so that through him we could experience life because life was in him, as John wrote. Help us, O oh Lord, to be able to apply these things to our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.